0: Welcome to RJ Court Watch, a legal podcast produced by RH Reality Check with your hosts, senior legal analyst Jessica Mason-Piclo and Imani Gandhi. This episode, we talk about, you guessed it, the contraception lawsuits, but this episode is a little different. Instead of bringing on a guest to dive into one specific piece of the legal challenge to the coverage requirement, Amani and I are going to take the rulings on ourselves. We now have a decision from the Roberts Court in the Hobby Lobby case, another preliminary order in the religious nonprofit challenges in the Wheaton College case, as well as news the administration is, once again, tinkering with the accommodation to the coverage requirement. All of that is a long-winded way of saying the battles over the contraception coverage requirement in the Affordable Care Act are far from finished. Amani, I gotta say, it feels kind of like we're losing right now. Are we losing? Why are we losing? What's going on?
1: (laughs) That's a good question. You know, I think we are losing in the short term. But I think the opposition, the birth control benefit naysayers, are inadvertently making a really strong argument for single payer. I think what they have done is they have set up a strategy whereby they litigated, well, particularly the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, which as much as I begrudgingly hate to admit it, I have to give them props for handling this litigation as well as they have and for handling it in a parallel manner. So they have represented Hobby Lobby. And a couple of years ago, I think we we can agree that we all thought it was a little bit outrageous that Hobby Lobby would be deemed a person for purposes of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and would be able to get an exemption from the birth control benefit, or at least I did. But two years later, here we are. Hobby Lobby has won the right to exempt itself from the birth control benefit on the basis that there is a less restrictive means to advance the government's interest. And the less restrictive means is there because the HHS crafted it, right? It's the accommodation that they have allowed religious nonprofits like Wheaton College, Notre Dame, Little Sisters of the Poor, to avail themselves of. And so this accommodation requires that they fill out a form, forward that form to their insurer, then their insurer will step in and provide the contraceptive coverage. So while they were litigating the Hobby Lobby case saying that, you know, we don't want to do the birth control benefit, there's a least restrictive means, that least restrictive means is the accommodation. At the same time, they're litigating on behalf of Wheaton College, Little Sisters of the Poor, and about five others, Um, and that's not including the umpteen other religious nonprofits that are also litigating but that are not being represented by this particular law firm. But they're, they're arguing that the accommodation itself violates RFRA because by filling out this form, they're basically triggering a process by which contraception will be available to their employees. So it's a dual track litigation strategy that they've been advancing. And it's actually pretty doggone smart, if you ask me, even though I hate to admit it. But yeah, we're losing. And I think we're losing, you know, it's hard to not, it's hard to not think that we're losing because the Obama administration screwed up in its effort to accommodate all of these religious complaints.
0: There's a lot there. So let's unpack that. And I, I agree. I think your read of the strategy is right on the money. So we have Hobby Lobby arguing that, you know, for profit corporations should have these exemption rights. And the Supreme Court, Justice Alito said, sure thing. We'll give you, we'll make it look narrow, though, right? We'll make it so that it's only closely held for profit corporations. And that sort of appearance of, of a narrow ruling then was, you know, followed up. Up by saying, and you know, the Hobby Lobby folks only really objected to four specific types of contraception. So, C, it's going to be even narrower. And then almost within the same breath, turned around and granted the injunction to Wheaton College, this evangelical college out of uh, Wheaton, Illinois, that that, as you said, objects to the accommodation. And so there's this seems to be this wink and an odd going on that the Supreme Court is saying this is a narrow approach. We're going to be judicious and restrained in how we attack the issue of religious liberties and balancing those against employee rights. But their rulings have done the exact opposite and um, made possible in part, in in large part, thanks to that uh, litigation strategy from the Beckett fund.
1: And it's also in part, I think, due to the sort of abysmal litigation strategy of, of the government. I mean, They've been arguing these birth control benefit cases for years now, and entirely absent from the argument is the women who these cases are going to affect. I mean, it's understandable that the client, that their client is the government, and so they're supposed to advance government policy and advance government argument. But part of litigation strategy is making a case have a human aspect to it to make it seem like it's important for actually humane reasons, and that's what the opposition has done. The opposition has made these claims that, you know, the Hans and the Greens and, and, and the, the people who run Wheaton College and the people who run Notre Dame are sort of, you know, infused with this religion and, and Jesus and how unfair it is that the government is is coming in and saying your religious viewpoints don't matter and we're going to force you to do these horrible things that violate our faith and isn't this terrible? And so it puts a human face on basically what's a technical legal argument. And the government hasn't really done that. They haven't really talked about how this is going to affect the women? They talk about it in very in very grand, broad terms about how it's important for women to have contraception, and they cite statistics, but they don't actually go down to a granular level of, you know, Jane Doe works at Hobby Lobby. Jane Doe has three daughters. They're all on the same insurance plan. Jane Doe wants to be able to have contraception, and her daughters want to be able to have contraception. Or John Doe works at Hobby Lobby, and his wife and his daughters want to have contraception. I mean. There's a way to argue these cases to make the impact on people, on employees, more at the forefront than I think they have.
0: Yeah, and I think our opposition has done this effectively, like you mentioned in in these contraception cases, and we saw that specifically in the buffer zone cases, too, in McCullen, where we had the plump grandmas as the face of the anti-choice protest movement when we know that that's not the case. You right. know, you brought up a really interesting point um, and something that has me concerned moving forward in the future litigation on this, too, and, and that's the extent to which the administration has failed to put a human face on on the, the people most affected by the coverage requirement. In the Hobby Lobby decision, and even in Wheaton College, the Supreme Court, the conservative majority said, you know, well, the government made a case that um, providing contraception coverage is a compelling interest. And so we're really not going to get into that at the moment. We're going to sort of take them at their word for it. And it got picked up is, well, the Supreme Court agreed that there's a compelling government interest in providing contraception. I don't know if it's that firm a statement. And with the administration not aggressively defending the coverage requirement and not effectively putting a human face on it, it concerns me that when we get to the Supreme Court again on these cases, which we will in some fashion, I'm convinced on the nonprofit accommodation, that that's going to give the conservative majority an opportunity to actually craft a ruling that says whether or not they believe it's a compelling interest, and I don't know that we're going to get it.
1: What's interesting about about the interest that the government advanced as compelling is that they keep using these broad statements that it's public health and gender equality. And the Supreme Court actually said that the advanced interest was not public health or gender equality, but providing cost-free access to the FDA approved contraceptives. So they assumed an interest as compelling, but that interest was not ever stated by the government. So it's very odd in that respect. And then secondly, you know, they said specifically, we find it unnecessary to adjudicate this issue. So it very well may be that they follow the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals route and say, yeah, it's not really that compelling or the government hasn't made its case that it's compelling. And frankly, you know, I'd be hard pressed to disagree because the government isn't doing its job in, as as you say, putting a human face on this issue. So I, I, I agree with you. I think we're going to be seeing this next year. I, I, I would hope that the Supreme Court statements in both Wheaton College and Hobby Lobby that that the decisions in those two cases won't have any effect on female employees' ability to access contraceptive. But given the litigation strategy, it seems as if um, you know, the Beckett Fund and all, of these, and all of their clients are backing HHS into a corner. And in so doing, backing the Supreme Court into a corner Whereby they're going to have to pick either contraceptive access or religious liberty, and we and I think we all know who's going to lose in that calculus.
0: So, Amani, um, let's make you and I um, queens in charge of this litigation. How would if let, So we now work at the Department of Justice. How should we how should we deal with these cases? Because I know you and I have gone back and forth a hundred times on this in terms of why are they arguing this? What is going on? So let's file our amicus brief.
1: Um, well. For starters, I think that they need to stop, in, especially in the accommodation cases, they need to stop using language that makes it seem like they are mocking people's religious faith. Oh,
0: so agreed. They,
1: you know, so in the briefs, they keep saying, you know, they say that that it's ridiculous that Wheaton College objects to filing the form. And I think there's a very good legal argument as to why it is ridiculous that they re- object to filling out the form. And I think Justice Sotomayor made that argument in her dissent. But you'll notice that in her dissent, she repeatedly stated that she had no doubt that Wheaton College's faith was, was real. She had no doubt that they sincerely believed that signing this form was a violation of their belief. But what she said is, sincerely believing that signing the form is a violation of your religious faith doesn't actually make it so. And so I think the government needs to focus more on the sincerely part of a sincerely held belief. I think it was a mistake for them to not um, go after both Wheaton College and Hobby Lobby on the sincerely held belief prong, because as as you and I know, and hopefully most of our listeners know by now, both Hobby Lobby and Wheaton College offered – contraception in their plans before they were told by the Obama administration that they they had to. So, how sincerely held can a belief be if you didn't even know that you were violating your religious faith until somebody pointed it out to you?
0: So, this is great lawyering here because you're right. So, attacking the plaintiffs effectively, the Greens or Wheaton College, and saying, you know, I, I believe they were, you know, uh, I can't remember the exact analogy, like fighting with dragons or something like yes. that. It was, fighting, it was fighting invisible dragons. Fighting invisible dragons. So, Justice Sotomayor does this great thing in the dissent in the Wheaton College order where she basically, as you you said, lays out the case against crafting an injunction for Wheaton College that that says respectfully, you can believe in, you know, the spaghetti monster, but that doesn't make the belief a reality. And it's up to the courts to decide where that line is. So the Obama administration could, as you said, stop making it look like they're making fun of people's religious beliefs and, and in fact, just shift that burden back to the courts. Say, Your Honors, we're not suggesting that these people don't believe this or that they don't sincerely. really think this. We're asking you to do your job and decide whether or not filling out a form is in fact too burdensome or not.
1: And in addition, I think that, you know, there's, there's been a lot of talk about what substantial burden means. Is the substantial burden calculus addressed to what will happen if you are forced to violate your religious faith? So is it the fines that you will incur? Or is that the substantial burden? Or is it the activity that the government is asking you to engage in? Is that the substantial burden? So is, is, the, are, is the fact that Wheaton College is going to incur umpteen million dollars of fines the substantial burden? Or do we have to look at substantial burden as whether or not filling out that form, it might be a burden, but is it a substantial burden? And I think that there's a real question as to what the substantial burden applies to, what category of activity it applies to. And I think we have a real problem with the courts allowing these plaintiffs to read substantial out of the phrase substantial burden. So it becomes any burden whatsoever to my religious faith it rises to some sort of constitutional or, or statutory crisis?
0: Maybe naively, I thought that the Hobby Lobby decision would in some ways bring an end to some of this fight, um, that we would get a decision from the Roberts court. And in some ways, um, while the fight over healthcare reform may not be over writ large, that particular portion of it would be how wrong I was. So <laughs> knowing that this is going on and on and on, and we have likely a Supreme Court case on the nonprofit accommodation. And then the sort of big question that's out there that I know you have some thoughts on, which is, okay, so Hobby Lobby gets this accommodation. What are the chances that it's acceptable to them? I
1: think the chances are zero to none.
0: Yeah. Like like,
1: as my father would say, slim to none is slim just left town. I mean, it's, (laughs) it's, it's one of those things where, I mean, if you read their strategy and their briefs carefully, they never actually said we want the accommodation that you've made available to these other religious nonprofits like Wheaton College and Notre Dame and Little Sisters – they never said we want that accommodation to be available to us. They simply said that they were not happy with being forced to, re- to to comply with the birth control benefit and that the accommodation offered to these other groups was an example or proved that there was a lesser restrictive means. But that doesn't mean that they're gonna be happy with that accommodation. And so I'd be willing to bet you dollars to donuts that the next thing we're going to see is Hobby Lobby filing a lawsuit, joining in with all of the religious nonprofits, and now they're going to be claiming that the accommodation is a violation of, of of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act as applied to closely held corporations. And so we have to remember that closely held corporations make up about 90% of the corporations in the United States. So ultimately, I think the goal of these lawsuits is to make it so that no corporation or no organization that is not publicly traded on Wall Street, none, no organization will have to be involved in any way in any scheme that might eventually lead to some woman down the line taking contraception after they consult their doctor and after they get some sort of extra special insurance plan that they may or may not have to pay for out of pocket. I mean, it's just this long line of like attenuated circumstances between the corporation and the woman popping the pill. But I think that the, the Supreme Court has certainly by by issuing this emergency injunction, has opened, has indicated that they are open up to the idea that the accommodation itself violates RIFRA. And if that's the case, then, then what is HHS supposed to do? I mean, how are they supposed to figure out who everyone's insurer is and then contact that insurer? You know, because because let me backtrack a little bit. So the Supreme Court said that. Wheaton College could just notify HHS in writing, but the Supreme Court didn't say that in that written notice, they have to tell HHS who their insurer is. And so HHS knows who Wheaton Wheaton College's insurer is on the basis of the litigation through discovery and documents and whatnot. But there are umpteen other religious nonprofits that have not yet sued the government that will, what, they're just going to write HHS, say, we object. Now you have to figure out who our insurer
0: is. Good luck. Thumbs up. We've got these two tracks that you've outlined, and the Obama administration is already tinkering with the accommodation in light of this emergency injunction from Wheaton College, and we know that won't be acceptable, right? I mean, no matter what they do, they will sue on that. We have the lawsuits challenging the subsidies under the federal exchanges, and those will continue to go on, and I think you're right. Hobby Lobby is going to challenge whatever it is that the Obama administration comes up with. So that either the options are nobody ever has to cover contraception or the administration gives up, that this becomes too political a battle for them to wage. It's just too costly. They have to sacrifice too much time and too much energy defending the lawsuits. I mean, there are, what, over 100 lawsuits that have been filed on the contraception coverage requirement alone. And now a new set of of accommodations um, will be coming out this fall, which just means a whole new host of of lawsuits. Lawsuits. at some point, I think the plan is just to make people give up, whether it's people trying to access contraception or the administration itself. And that's deeply cynical. That's an abusive process in my mind.
1: Oh, it's absolutely an, an abusive process. But I mean, you know, we've been very do- doom and gloom thus far, but I think there is a silver lining and it's not necessarily a silver lining that's that's going to make itself apparent in the short term. But in the long term, what these people have inadvertently done is paved the way for single payer, because if they're going to continue to whatever the Obama administration does, they're you know, the opposition is going to say, well, is this the least restrictive means? And the fact that the Obama administration is tweaking the accommodation again before the Little Sisters of the Poor and Wheaton College cases get resolved. Gives the other side ammunition in those cases to say, well, obviously this isn't the least restrictive means because you went ahead and you tweaked it even further. So I think it's a mistake for the Obama administration to tweak it in advance. But all that being said, if you read the briefs of a lot of these corp- of a lot of these these entities and organizations, you know, they they list a laundry list of things that might be less restrictive. One of those things is the government providing contraceptives to women directly. And now the amusing part about this is is that you know conservatives have been ranting and raving ever since Sandra Fluke you know testified on Congress They've been ranting and raving about you know, women are just sluts who can't keep their legs closed and why should I have to pay for you to have sex? Why are you looking to Daddy Obama to pay for your birth control? When in reality, up till now, that's not what we have been asking. We have been saying we want our, our birth control covered as a part of our wages because it's covered in our health insurance plan and health insurance is is, is wages. It's what we earn as part of our labor. Now, if they want to say that the government is going to just directly provide contraception to women, then that really is is asking taxpayers to fund birth control. And that's not what conservatives want, but that's the corner that they're backing themselves into. So it's going to be really interesting when they wake up and realize that what they've actually done is accidentally argued for a, a complete government takeover of healthcare, which I, for one, am entirely for. And I think most progressives and anyone listening to this podcast is
0: entirely for. But I don't think the conservatives are going to be too happy with
1: that option if and when that takes place
0: here, here. And, you know, again, to give a little bit of um, tough love to the administration on this, your point earlier when we were talking about their failure to put a face on um, this battle, that might be changing too. You know, another interesting wrinkle in all of this is of course, after the Hobby Lobby and Wheaton College decisions came down, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission issued a new set of regulations relating to pregnancy discrimination. And buried in a footnote in those EEOC regs was a note that said, oh, by the way, it continues to be our position that those employers who fail to cover prescriptive contraceptions in their health insurance plans engage in gender discrimination and violate Title 7. The same day, the Department of Labor announced that those employers who were planning on dropping uh, contraception coverage as a result of the Hobby Lobby decision needed to notify their employees, thus you know, arguably giving them the ammunition necessary to file an EEOC complaint and start that process claiming gender discrimination, which is a different bar than what the government needs to prove um, under RIFRA, which, you know, is a way to say, well, the Obama administration may have screwed up initially on the defense and litigation of some of these cases. However, some of the correction seems to at least be pointing in the right direction.
1: Right, right. Yeah, and I would love to see, I would love to see some women actually suing their their employers, seeking, you know, whether through the EEOC or whether whether it's through intervening in existing lawsuits the way a handful of Notre Dame students have intervened in that lawsuit. I, I really would like to see Women standing up for themselves, or at least someone standing up for women, because we've just we've just been lost in this brouhaha about religion. It's just a bunch of dudes talking about what women need and talking about our health care as if as if a large portion of our health care just doesn't matter. You know, like they need to, they need to be able to siphon off reproductive healthcare as something apart from health care. And and that became that's apparent in the Hobby Lobby decision. I mean, they Alito attempted to be so narrow and attempted to to siphon off vaccinations and blood transfusions because, oh, well, we're not necessarily saying that this is going to apply to those types of medical procedures. It only applies to to
0: contraception. And that's just ludicrous in my mind. It's ludicrous and deeply offensive because then what Alito is saying is it's discrimination except for when it impacts women. And then it's not really discrimination at all. Then it's just Freedom. Every time I read the Hobby Lobby decision, I just I
1: start yelling out loud and snarling in disgust because it's just it's so frustrating. Especially, and and this is one thing I wanted to talk about the fact that Catholic theological legal thinking has somehow made its way into a Supreme Court opinion. That's.
0: That's, as you said to me the other day, just
1: I think via G chat, that is terrifying.
0: Right. So, if our listeners haven't um, caught that uh, in the Hobby Lobby decision, I think it was what, footnote 34, if I'm actually right on that off the it top is. of it's my absolute,
1: head. It's absolutely footnote 34. And All it's right. funny that we both know that. <laughs> okay.
0: Time for a vacation. Um, really? But in addition, so, so in the Hobby Lobby decision, Justice Alito drops this footnote citing Catholic moral theology t- for support of the legal conclusion that the Greens' religious beliefs were substantially burdened. So when people freak out about Sharia law, all I'm going to do is point them to Hobby Lobby v. Verwell and say, what, we're okay with this because this isn't case law that Justice Alito cited. This is Catholic theology.
1: Right. And it's, I mean, it just, it has no place in a Supreme Court opinion. It really doesn't. I mean, the fact that, that they're, they're citing Catholic theology, but ignoring science, in the very same opinion, is really alarming to me. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, the Hans and the Greens and umpteen other plaintiffs believe that life begins at conception, and they believe that the morning after pill is an abortive fashion. Well... Frankly, what you believe doesn't matter because it's absolutely not true. You can sincerely believe that gummy bears will cause abortions, but the fact of the matter is that it's not true. And it is the court's job to force a plaintiff to back up their opinions or their allegations in a complaint with facts. And the fact that no court, not the district court, the 10th circuit, or the, the, the Supreme Court required Hobby Lobby to put forth some sort of evidence demonstrating that the contraceptive devices to which they oppose were abortifacients when they're not. The overwhelming medical consensus is that they're not. And I find it really, really disturbing that they just glossed over that and said, well, they believe it, so let's just go with it. But when those religious beliefs are based on on, on false statements of scientific fact, then I think it's incumbent upon a court to say, look, you can believe in what you want, but what you believe is not true. And so we're not going to base case law on some belief that is just patently not true.
0: Right. There is a difference between belief and fact. And right. the court... Very willingly substitutes one for the other in the cases of reproductive health care, particularly in Hobby Lobby. And they do it in the abortion cases all the time, which again, I just think is further support that, you know, from the court's perspective. Reproductive health care isn't really health care because it impacts women and therefore it doesn't matter or doesn't have to be science and evidence driven. It can be ideological and, um, you know, religiously faith based driven because it's not real. It's other. It's, you know, it's it's for something other than us.
1: If, if science has no place in the courtroom, then we're just slip, we're just slipping down a slide to, you know, a Catholic theocracy. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to live in a Catholic theocracy because I'm not Catholic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Frankly, I was raised Catholic and still don't want to live in a Catholic theocracy. <laughs> no, thank you. Well, so looking ahead, we don't have anything right now, thank God, before the Supreme Court on these on these cases, but we know it's coming up. So, we've got a bunch of the nonprofit challenges in the 10th Circuit. We've got Notre Dame in the 7th Circuit. What should we be on the lookout for strategically from our friends at the Beckett Fund as these cases advance?
1: I think we should be looking for them to file suit on behalf of Hobby Lobby, claiming that the accommodation that HHS crafted for the religious nonprofits violates RFRA as applied to closely held corporations. I think that we should be looking for the Beckett Fund to to wait for these new accommodations that the Obama administration is going to tweak and then use that in the lawsuits that are existing to say, well, hey, wait a minute. You know, we're entitled to preliminary injunctions on all of these cases because the Obama administration has just gone ahead and mucked about with the, with the existing accommodation. I mean, those are the two things that come to mind off the top of my head.
0: I hope we see some employees who receive notice from their employers that they've dropped contraception coverage, file some equal employment complaints with their local EEOC chapters and absolutely pursue these as gender discrimination claims because they are.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, what What I really think we need to do is pass the damn ERA. Hooray. (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, I I know it's I think who it is, it's a Benjamin Cardin, I think, is a senator out of Maryland who keeps introducing a bill that would require that would um that would make it so that states don't have to go back to the beginning of the process to get that, what is it, two-thirds? Yeah, we only need three more states. We only need three more states. Why can't we find three more? One of
0: them I- is Illinois. We should be able to get Illinois and Arkansas and and Mississippi, and, and there's a handful. But yes, I am on the ERA bandwagon with you, Imani, past the ERA. I mean, we've got a lot of women, a lot
1: of men too, a lot of activists who are down for this cause. So maybe we need to figure out a way to organize to use this, this abomination of a decision to our advantage. Because if the ERA were passed, I don't think that I, I don't think that they would have been able to, to, to pass this decision. And and I understand that, you know, in previous years, abortion rights has been sort of the death knell of the ERA. And there are a lot of, I think, Democrats and people on our side who are afraid to bring up the ERA because they don't want to have the fight about abortion. But it's
0: time to have the fight about abortion. At the very least, the Equal Rights Amendment would force justices like Alito and Scalia to recognize and put women in their decisions. I mean, the word right. women, I think, appeared 13 times I saw in right. the Hobby Lobby. Lobby decision, completely, totally absent from their calculus, an affirmative constitutional statement that women have equal rights as men would make that impossible. Right. And it would also
1: make it impossible, for example, the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals to reject gender equality as a compelling interest, as they did in their decision on the Hobby Lobby case.
0: Okay, so this is perfect because in about 30 minutes, Amani and I have have drafted out the amicus brief that we're going to file to help (laughs) kickstart the administration's defense of this very important contraception coverage requirement. We wouldn't be so critical of it if we didn't believe so strongly in it. So this is tough love from friends. And also um, move forward on passing the ERA as a way to put an end to all of this nonsense from the right once and for all.
1: Yep, yep. And you know, I'm not exactly one of those ready for Hillary people, but maybe if we get a female president next, maybe that'll help jumpstart the ERA because frankly, it's, it's 2014 and it's ludicrous that it's not been passed
0: here, here, put it on the ballot, get as many women on the ballot. You know, heck, uh, Hillary put Elizabeth Warren in the mix. Um, I'm all for, you know, an embarrassment of riches and qualified women candidates just to make the point of what's going on on the right. Thank you for listening to RJ Court Watch and be sure to catch all of our reporting and analysis on the contraception benefit at www.rhrealitycheck.org.